prayed for these um, terrible things that happened in Paris and France just a couple of days ago where terrorists um, went into several different locations and um, suicide bombs went off. Others used machine guns to kill up to uh, 138 people and uh, many more were injured or wounded. And one thing that I that I saw, uh, what, what struck me after these things, so about the, the night of and then the day afterwards, is great support um, was visible through the media, through different uh, ways. We could see that people were supporting France. And one thing that um, stuck out to me was this slogan, and that's what we did tonight is pray for France. You see hashtag pray for France. And as I was thinking about that, I think, well, that's, that's good. And I'm glad we pray for France, and, and I prayed for France, and I'll continue to pray for France. But when you see that, and you think, yeah, we should pray for France, what would a prayer for France look like? When you hear that, when you see that, pray for France. Yeah, I'll do that. But, but what would this prayer even look like? And how would your prayer as a Christian, be different than maybe the Muslim who posted the same thing. They would say, pray for France. So how would your prayer be different from that? And in the text tonight, one of the two big things that we will see is what a prayer for France or anything else in this world would look like. And we'll see a model of prayer that should encourage us to pray in the manner that that we see it prayed in this passage. So tonight I'll preach to you from 1 Kings 8. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 30. Let me begin by reading uh, this text to you. 1 Kings 8, verse 22 through 30. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declare to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be opened night and day towards this house, the place of which you've said, My name shall be there. 
that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your people. Thank you for the church that we are able to gather here today in peace, worship you in song and prayer, and by listening to your word. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me as I bring this word to your people. I pray that you would make things clear that are unclear, that you would make things known that are unknown, and Lord, that you ultimately would be glorified, that your people would be enriched. Lord, I pray that you would put me behind and put yourself in front of me and speak through your spirit to your people. Lord, I do pray that you would call out those who are not your people, that you would draw them to yourself and that you would save them through the gospel. Father, I do pray these things through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in order to better understand the the passage that I just read to you, let me just give you um, a background to the story and to this text that we find ourselves in this evening. So 1 Kings uh, is part of a two, what we have as a two-book series, 1 and 2 Kings, but in the original text it was just one big book, the book of Kings. And it's a telling of of the monarchy in Israel. It includes the split of a kingdom. It tells of good and bad kings. And eventually, at the end, it tells of the destruction of the temple and the exile to Babylon. And historically, it follows First and Second Samuel. So it picks, off, it picks up where First and Second Samuel left off. Just to note, two of the important themes in this book are wisdom and folly in, in contrast to each other. You see the the kings who are wise and worship God, and then there are the the kings who are foolish, who worship idols. And this this idol worship, idolatry, that's the other big theme that we see in this book, is is, uh, the contrast between worshiping the God of Israel and worshiping the gods of the nations, the idols. And in the chapters in the book 1 Kings, leading up to our passage today, We see in the very beginning, David is old and he's about to die. And the question comes up, who is going to be the heir and who is going to be the next king? And his son Adonijah just declares himself to be king. But it was Solomon who was supposed to be the king. And through a series of events, that's what ultimately happens. Solomon becomes the new king of the people of Israel. And this is around the year 970 B.C. So David dies and Solomon takes over as the new king. And he starts by eliminating his enemies. He strengthens his own position. And he establishes his own kingdom. He expands the kingdom. And he shows a moment of great wisdom is when he asks God, not for riches or anything like that, but he asks God for wisdom to rule the people of God. So we see Solomon as a very wise man. And in return, God not only gives him wisdom to rule the people, but he also blesses him with the worldly riches that he ends up having. 
And we also see Solomon as being a wise judge. We see Solomon as a wise man who sets up a very detailed governing structure. So we see the wisdom of God in that through him. And then ultimately he acquires great riches. He acquires a great army, many soldiers and horses. And then he begins by planning uh, the temple. Ultimately, we see that the temple is being built. We get a lot of detail of what the temple looks like. And then he also builds himself a house, a palace. But the palace ends up being a much, um, it takes longer to construct it. It is bigger than the temple. temple. And so we also see the shift in, in Solomon. And then after the, or I'm, I'm sorry, so these things that, that we see, these riches that he acquires, they should be, to the reader, red flags. Because in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, there's a warning of having a king who would have many women's horses, gold and silver. But instead, Deuteronomy says that Israel should have a king that studies and keeps the word of God as well as fears God. And so these red flags should come up as, as Solomon starts to acquire these riches. And then after uh, the passage in, in chapter 8, we see that Solomon receives even acknowledgement from Gentiles as the queen um, of uh, the queen Sheba comes and, and um, acknowledges his wisdom and his riches. But then we also see that he starts worshiping idols. We, we see him gathering more and more women and, and wives, and, and they bring their gods with them, and they bring idolatry with, with them. And so Solomon starts worshiping false gods, and that is the ultimate downfall of Solomon. And then his son is the one, he is, his name is Rehoboam. He is the one who then causes the split of the kingdom that was promised to Solomon. God tells Solomon, by the way, things are going. You will lose the kingdom and it will be split. But because of your father David, it will not happen to you, but it will happen to your son. And so that's what we then see in the narrative. We see Judah and Israel split. We see wars. And then we see a long chain of different kings, as I mentioned, the ones who are foolish, worshiping idols, but even the wise ones who don't worship idols, they don't go all the way with their reforms. They don't purge the entire kingdom from idols. They just go to a certain degree, but then it stops there. So ultimately, none of them are fully faithful. And so I like the way that the big story, the biggest story Bible, uh, nicely summarizes uh, the events of uh, the book of Kings and states this. Solomon started off on the right foot, but ended up tripping quite spectacularly. And then it further says, After Solomon, the kingdom split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Neither kingdom was very good. So that is, I think, a very good summary of the events that take place in this book and kind of give us a backdrop and a background to the text that we're looking at today. So let's go through... Um, chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, looking at some of the more specific observations that we can make of this text. So starting in verse 22, then, Psalm stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And so we see Solomon here in front of the people of Israel. He is their king, so he is representing the people of Israel. And what we know from uh, 2 Chronicles 6.13 
it tells us in more detail that, that he had made a bronze platform for himself on which he at first stood, but then he knelt down on this, on this platform. And this was also in front of a bronze basin that was used for the blood sacrifices. So that's a, um, on a little side note there, a connection how Solomon prays, but he's also, the people are very aware that he is there and right with them is the blood of the sacrifice. The only way that anybody can approach God is, is through the blood of sacrifice. And so he lifts up his hands, which is just a sign of openness to God. So he, he shows this openness to God with his hands uh, toward heaven. And then verse 23, he starts his prayer, starts by saying, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declare to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, which you've promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And so there's a lot that we can see in this, in this text, and I want to just point out a few things to you. And the first question, or the first observation, goes back to the question that I, that I posted in the beginning, is this question of, when you pray, and when you respond to a post that says, pray for France, what does that look like? What would that prayer look like? And I, I, uh, I commend to you this prayer of, Solomon, and I want to point out this prayer of Solomon as a model prayer, as a prayer that should be reflected in the way that we pray. But first of all, when you f- the first question you should ask yourself, when anybody prays to God, why should God listen to your prayer? And what would you say to that question? So if you started praying and somebody walked up to you and said, why would God listen to your prayer? What would you say? So if somebody were to ask Solomon in that moment, Solomon, hold up. Why would God listen to your prayer? And so there are, um, in in Isaiah 59 too, uh, the Bible says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And Proverbs 15, 8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. So why should God listen? Why should God hear you? Why should God listen to your prayer in spite of the fact that Isaiah just told us that God does not hear us because of our sins, because of our iniquities? So God does not hear our prayers, the Bible says, unless there is a way how He would hear us in spite of our sin and in spite of our iniquities. And the Bible not only tells us that God does not listen to the prayer of those who are not his children, those who don't believe in him, but he also tells us that there is a way to be heard by God if you are his child. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, 22 we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So what the Bible tells us then is that we can only come to God in prayer through Jesus Christ. So the question then would be answered, why would God answer your prayer is because of Jesus. Because I'm not coming to God on my own righteousness, but I'm coming to God on behalf of Christ's righteousness. I'm coming to you through Jesus, we would say to God. And so this is the, the baseline, the base assumption that, that we need to have this, um, this day is that we can only come to God through Jesus. So that is the first assumption that I will make um, when we ask the question, why should God hear our prayers? But then in Solomon's prayer, we see more specific reasons that we could give from the Bible of why God should listen to our prayers. So the first one is then that we see in the text is that it is prayer that draws from God's character or his attributes. So starting out in verse 23, Solomon prays, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. So he's pointing out, God, there's nobody like you. You are unique. None of the other gods are like you. And so he is claiming this, this uniqueness of God to say, you should listen to my prayer because you're not like the other gods that I could pray to. You're a unique God. And the same concept we can also see in Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, where the author uses steadfast love and goodness in order to have his sins forgiven. So he's asking for his sins to be forgiven. And he is saying, because of God's steadfast love and because of his goodness, he should forgive my sins. And in Psalm 119, 68, it says that God is good. And later in 73, it says God is creator. And the author is using that as reasons or arguments why God should listen to the prayer of the psalmist. And the second observation that we can make about why God should listen to our prayer in the prayer of Solomon then, is that it is a prayer that draws from a specific promise to ask God. So here in this text, we see that Solomon is claiming the promise to David, where he says in verse 20, uh, 24, You've kept with your servant David, my father, what you've declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. So he's, he, is ta- he is talking about the promise that was made to David. And he is saying, because you have kept this promise, you should also hear my prayer. I know you are a God who keeps his promises. So Solomon is then using God's promise to David um, as his argument, if you will, to make his prayer heard by God. And this concept can also be seen in Genesis 32, 11 and 12, where Jacob claims God's promise to ask for deliverance from Esau. And in Nehemiah 1, 
um, 4 through 11, but especially verses 8 and 9, he claims a promise uh, made to Moses. And so we see this concept through the Bible, and in this uh, passage in particular, is that Solomon is claiming a promise that God has made and is using that as a grounds for uh, God answering his prayer. And also the same happens in verse uh, 25 then where he says, Keep your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you've walked before me. So here's another promise that was made to David. And Solomon is saying, Because you've made that promise, God, I ask that you would also hear my prayer and be faithful to your promise. Then the third argument that Solomon is using to have his prayer heard by God is that he uses a prayer that draws from the relationship to God as a basis for his prayer. And we see that in verse 28, where he says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. So twice we see Solomon calling himself a servant of God, and he is saying, my God. So he is using that relational status that he has with God to say, look, I'm not just anybody. I'm your servant, and you are my God. So please, would you please listen to my prayer? Would you hear my plea and my cry this day? And this concept can also be found in Psalm 119.94 and verse 125, as well as Isaiah 64, 8 through 12, uh, where Isaiah speaks of God as a father and uh, him or us as clay. And so it's this relational status that we have with God that, that Solomon is drawing from. So we see three types of prayer, three types of approaches that Solomon uses, and there are several others, but in this passage only we see that he draws from God's character or his attributes. He draws from a specific promise. And he also draws from the relational status that he has. And so those are encouragements to us, then, of how we should pray. And then another note on the word steadfast love. That is going back to verse 23 that I wanted to point out to you is... Not only does Solomon use that as a grounds um, for his prayer, but it's also a very important concept that we see in the Old Testament is this idea of God's covenant faithfulness. That's what's in this word. The meaning of this word is God's covenant faithfulness. And it's very interesting to find it in this book because 1 Kings is a book where we see God as the covenant keeper in a book full of covenant breakers. And God's covenant uh, faithfulness, his steadfast love, um, is, is a multifaceted uh, concept that includes his kindness and mercy, but also his loyalty, duty, and even obligation. And it expresses God's unique faithfulness and love for his people. And it's this idea that God is bound to the promise that he's made. It's a, it's a promise that he can't break because it's a promise that he, that he made. And he remains committed uh, to this promise despite of the sins of the people 
and despite of um, I'm sorry, and despite of the sins of the people, and this is what provides a basis for forgiveness and restoration. And so looking at the prayer of Solomon, and as I mentioned, it's a model prayer for us. It's a prayer that we should model if things come up like pray for France or pray for a loved one, pray for anything that you can think of, you fill in the blank. And for us, that means when we pray to God is that we cannot grow tired of who he is. We cannot grow tired of who he is. And when we approach him, just like Solomon, we need to acknowledge God's character. That's what we see when he is claiming his uniqueness and his covenant faithfulness. Those are things that are part of God's character. And when we pray in the same way, we should acknowledge God's character. And also we can come to God with boldness. So think about a king and think about coming into the presence of a king. So that's hard. We don't have a king in this country. But if you think about back in the medieval times and they would go to a king and they would bring something forth to that king, maybe a message or a plea or something like that, the king would ask, why would I listen to you? Why would you come to you? Why would you come to me? And what is the what is the grounds on which you stand to come to me, the king? So in the same way, God would ask, why are you coming to me? What is the ground on which you stand? So when you approach God, the king, which ground do you stand on? Do you stand on the ground of Jesus Christ, the only way to God the Father? And do you claim, are you able to claim God's faithfulness and his covenant and his uniqueness and his character? Are you able to claim to be in covenant with God through his Son? Like I mentioned earlier, the Bible shows us that we can only come to God through Jesus. That is that covenant that we can have with God. And only those who enter into that covenant with God can come to God in prayer. And only those are the ones that God listens to in prayer. So only those who have trusted in God, who have trusted in in Jesus as their Savior, can come to God. And so think about those things as as you say, I'm praying for friends, I'm praying for a person that I know. And there are a few other aspects that are part of praying like this. It, um, it is a prayer that is more effective. It is a praying more effectively, but you're not manipulating God. So you're praying precise, effective, but you're not manipulating God saying, you have done this, you have promised this, therefore you now you need to give me this. But you're just you have a more focused prayer. You have a focused prayer on his promises. And it's also a prayer that is a prayer with more faith and eagerness. Because of that ground that I mentioned that you can stand on, you can now eagerly anticipate God to fulfill his promises because you know him to be a God that keeps his promises. So you, you can stand on something. You can pray with more faith and confidence. 
you can also pray with a better understanding of God's character. You know the person better that you're coming to. You know the person better that you're praying to. You know this, this God better that you're coming to. And it also avoids us, um, or it keeps us from praying flippantly or selfishly. Because you don't just say this quick word of prayer of, hey God, I, I need this, so you take care of that. But rather, you pray a reverential prayer. You pray a prayer that shows God, I know who you are. I know you're a holy and big God. You are a covenant-keeping God. And it is also a less selfish prayer because you are focused on what God is focused on. So you start thinking of the concerns that God has rather than your own concerns. So that also dramatically then changes the way that we approach God. Then we're just going to briefly skip over verse 27, but we'll come back to verse 27 uh, later. But going through, um, I already mentioned how Solomon prays in verse 28 uh, using their relationship of him being a servant and God being his God. But we also see that uh, Solomon then starts giving a special attention to the temple. He asked God that his eyes would be on the temple night and day. Um, and he says, it's the place of which you have said my name shall be there, in verse 29. And it's a prayer offered towards this place, Solomon prays. And then again in verse 30, we see it is a prayer towards this place. And so if God is in the temple, and this is metaphorically speaking, then praying to the temple is praying to God. And if the people, the people of Israel and Solomon pray to the temple, then they are praying to God. And Solomon here is making the argument, if we are praying to this, if to this temple, we're praying to you, God, therefore, you should listen to our prayers. And the temple in this setting, I mentioned Solomon was the one who planned and built it. It's a new place of worship. It is a place of worship for the people of Israel. And it was the only place where people could make sacrifices for their sins at this point. And this was also predicted in Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 6, that there would be one central place where people could make sacrifices. So then, let's go back to verse 27 and look at that verse again that um, sits right in the middle of, of this prayer. Where Solomon asked, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So this is almost like a break. It's almost like a pause in this bold prayer where we see Solomon claiming to be in relationship with God. He is claiming the uniqueness of God, the character. And as I mentioned in verse 28 and following, again, he is, he is focusing on their relationship and it's a bold prayer. And in the middle of that sits this little verse that almost seems like Solomon is questioning what he is doing there. 
He says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? He's asking God to come and dwell in the temple. He's asking God to be there in their midst. But then he pauses and asks this big question. So what would Solomon have meant by God dwelling? Because God was considered in the Old Testament to live in the heavens, which is above the earth. And his dwelling among his people was considered as a coming down to his people and a relating to his people. God dwelling with his people showed that God is willing to identify with his people. And so as Solomon is praying and asking these questions, he probably had um, the following principles in mind when he's asking God to, uh, to come and dwell in the temple. And then when he posts this question, would God really do that? Solomon knew that God had revealed himself to David and Moses and Joshua so he can expect God to reveal himself again. He also knew that God was a personal God, as I mentioned before, so he could expect God to meet his people in this unique way. From the promise in, from the, um, promise in Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 6 that I mentioned, he would also be able to expect God to uh, have the central place of worship. And fourthly, he could expect God to dwell with his people because of God's character. So after, now into the, in the history of Israel, after they were freed from slavery in Egypt, they had a tabernacle, and that was the first special dwelling place for God. And it was God's dwelling place among the people. It was the, the tent of meeting at first, but, but that was only occasional appearances of God. But then the, dwell, then the uh, tabernacle was that fixed place where God would come and would show up and meet his people in a special way. And he would continually dwell there. And now this temple replaces the tabernacle, and it's this central place to approach God. And it was so important and clear to the Israelites that after they returned from exile, um, they immediately wanted to rebuild the temple to, to have this place back because to them, in their understanding, that is where God would dwell. That is the unique and only place where they could find God's unique presence. But I, I just find it very fascinating because that is an, an, a perspective of of Solomon of the Old Testament is that this idea of God having this unique place among his people and first in the tabernacle, now in the temple. And I just find it a very interesting question is the question that Solomon poses. Would God really dwell on earth? Would the maker of the universe dwell on earth? The creator of all things dwell on earth. And like Solomon points out, that is almost a little bit silly, is this idea that God, who cannot be contained by heaven and the highest heavens, that he should fit into this small temple. And so this is a statement, a question, that is even more significant than not only for Solomon from his perspective, but is even more significant to us as New Testament Christians. We have the New Testament that Solomon did not have. 
We know things that Solomon did not know. And so when we hear this question, this question that just so nicely sits there, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? What would we say? What answer would you give as somebody who knows the New Testament? Would God really dwell on earth? If, if you heard Solomon pray this prayer and he is seriously asking this question, what would you say to him? Also, in verse 25, Solomon had pointed out the promise from God to David where he says, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you've walked before me. So this promise, just like the statement, has a very different meaning to a New Testament Christian today than it would have had for Solomon. He didn't know what would happen. He even was the one who would end up tripping and falling. And so would his sons and all the following kings. All the following kings in the line of David would fall, and none of them would fulfill this promise of walking before God faithfully. But still, he says, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. And then he posed this question, would God dwell on earth? So now to state the obvious, and what you have probably been thinking is, we would answer, yes, Jesus. And of course, we would think of the Incarnation. We would think of the Gospel of Matthew that opens up by telling us that Jesus is the Son of David. And we would think of the Gospel of Matthew that calls Jesus Son of David nine times. This promise in verse 25 and this question in verse 27 has a whole different meaning to us. We know verse 25, fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 27, fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the promised one who sits on David's throne. He is the new temple and the way to God. He is the perfect king who will not fall into sin. And he is the ultimate mediator who is constantly making intercessions for us. So just think about this picture that you see here. You have Solomon making intercessions for the people of Israel standing outside the temple that was supposed to, be, to represent the presence of God, posting this promise that was made to David to have, a, to have a, an heir sitting on the throne of Israel for eternity, and then the question of if God's dwelling on earth, all of that coming together and all of that being fulfilled and being fulfilled in Jesus. It's a text like this that should make us pause and ponder. Something so unbelievable for Solomon. All these things coming together in one person just about 900 years later. That the maker of the universe would become low and humble. So that John would write in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God would dwell on earth, yes. 
And this precious truth should be on our minds as we enter into what is my most favorite season of the year. Because if we look around us, is that the world focuses on gifts. The world focuses on lights. The world focuses on even doing something good. Getting together with the family and eating food. That is what the world focuses on. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. But as Christians, we don't focus on that, first of all. That is not our first focus. But our focus is the answer to verse 27. But would God indeed dwell on the earth? It is the answer, yes, that we would give. That is the focus that we have entering into the season of Christmas. And we can say with the writer of the song that says, Come and see the inconceivable and believe the unbelievable. God has come to dwell with us. And it is the Christmas season, that is the time that we can say that He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is His name. And that should lead us then to say, Now my soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in the God who saves. I will trust His unfailing love. I will sing His praises all my days. And so lately, in our Sunday morning services, we've been hearing about misplaced awe. We've been hearing about getting bored with God's glory. But look at this text and tell me that you are bored. That with God's glory, that you're bored with God's glory and that you are bored with the things that he has done. We've also heard that eternal things should grip our attention rather than Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, or sports. And this, what we're seeing tonight, is an eternal thing. God, who cannot be contained by the highest heaven, has come down to us in the form of an infant, in the form of man. So when we hear this, when we look at this, the first part of the prayer, or the, I guess the first and latter part of this section of the prayer, is very clear. There's a clear application is, you should pray like this. You should pray in the same way that Solomon prays. And we looked at different ways that we can claim from Scripture that this is a model prayer. This is the way that our prayer should look like. So it is a very clear, here's what you should do now. Just pray like Solomon. Be in awe of God. Recognize his character. With this, it might not be as clear. What am I, what am I going to do now? What is the application? And the application is worship. It's this awe. And as we enter into the Christmas season especially, you should ponder these things and you should ponder what Christmas is really about. 
So when you pray to God, pray knowing his character and his promises. And be bold to approach him through Jesus Christ. And when you celebrate this beautiful season of Christmas, know that it was God who came to dwell with us. Let's pray.